Victor Emil Frankel was an Austrian Jew. He was a professor of neurology and psychiatry who uh, during World War II was imprisoned in a few different um, Nazi camps, concentration camps. In his book called The Doctor and the Soul, he writes this. If we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present him as an automation of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instincts, heredity, and environment, we feed the despair to which man is, in any case, already prone. I became acquainted with the last stages of corruption in my second concentration camp in Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or, as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Medenek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. In short, what he was saying was the idea of nihilism, the idea that no ultimate meaning is present in human life, that we are the ultimate deciders, that we're nothing but, as the Nazi says, blood and soil. This idea had consequences. Ideas have consequences is, a, is an idiom that most people are familiar with. But usually when people think about the idea, that idiom, that ideas have consequences, they associate it with uh, negativity. And while generally it can be like we see in this example, I believe that ideas hold the power to cause people to, to love, to give joy, to, to bless. In fact, the Bible itself is predicated on that idiom, right? That ideas have consequences, that the idea of the Bible, this meta-narrative creation, fall, redemption, and restoration has impact, influence, and should change the way people live. Um, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, the idea of the Bible and how specifically where we are in this continuum of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Because for us, creation has happened. God has already created everything from nothing, right? And there's already been the fall where Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and, and sin entered into, into our DNA, into who we are. And then we, we've already been freed from sin through the redemption of Jesus Christ for those who believe. So now we sit in this, this particular part of this meta-narrative, this grand story of the Bible where we look back in thankfulness to the redemption, but we look forward to the restoration of all things, the consummation of, of this, this entire story that God is, is making. And so here we are, in the middle of redemption and restoration. Our call is that Christ is coming soon. We no longer look forward to this coming Messiah who's going to die and, and save uh, humanity. No, we're, now we're looking for the Christ's second coming, that Christ is going to come. And what should that idea, what should the consequence of that idea be? Now, I've historically thought about the idea of Christ coming back, Christ coming soon as uh, kind of a, a negative um, motivation to, to be obedient, that, that this disciplinarian is going to come, so I better not be caught you know, being angry on the road or, or caught lying or stealing or, or doing whatever it is that we do, sinning when Christ comes back. We want to live these holy lives because we want to be ready for when Christ comes back. But I don't think in light of the fact that our God is a loving Father, is a perfect and gracious and holy one, that he already sees us through the righteousness of his Son, those ideas, those facts 
shouldn't produce in us a fear that Christ is coming, but rather a longing and an expectation that he's coming. That we don't need to be afraid of being caught for doing something. Rather, our motivation comes from something else. That we are, we are captured by, by this, uh, this amazing and, and beautiful Father who's done so much for us that out of the thankfulness of our hearts do we obey, not because of, because of our, our fear of what he would do to us. Christ is our Lord, he's our Savior, but he's perfect and he's loving. And so not only do we live right now in light of what he has done, which we're going to you know, look at uh, when we take communion and remember, but we also live in light of what he will do for us. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3. Keep your finger there in, in Revelation 22, but 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. I'll read it here. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? And if we were to stop there, we'd, we should be afraid, right? But verse 13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to the promise of God. And, and he goes on, he says, Therefore, beloved, since, since we are waiting for these things, be diligent be found, to be found with him without spot or blemish. Since, therefore, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. He's saying, because this is the reality in which we live, because this world that we look around in is, is going to fall away and he's going to create something new, how should that impact how we live? And he's calling them to be obedient, to be found without blemish, spot, to be at peace. So in light of the fact that this church might no longer be here, our jobs might no longer be necessary, uh, that this world will dissolve and be burning in fire and that he's going to come and create something brand new, how are we, not just the people that, that Peter's writing to, how are we as Christians living in light of that fact? The question is, do we really believe that to be fact? If we do believe that that is the ultimate reality, how is it going to affect us and why isn't it affecting us? Those are the questions we're going to try to ask. Now, let's go to our text, Revelations 22. We just talked about how Peter was reminding them that, about this reality. And then at the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, he leaves us with this picture of what this new creation is going to look like. Verse 22, we're going to start in, in or chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal and flowing from the throne of God. And through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Before we go on, look how intimate and close we as God's people will be. He's saying that we will be face-to-face -face with, this, with this lamb. His name will be on our foreheads. The idea of being face-to-face -face with God was unheard of in the Old Testament, right? 
Moses had to be hidden in a cleft of a rock, and he could only look at God's back. Angels in Isaiah were, were covering their face and their bodies and flying, saying, holy, 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 because they couldn't look at this holy God. Angels who were sinless, angels who were up there in heaven ministering to the Lord couldn't even look at him in the face. Yet we have the honor of being face-to-face with God. Again, ideas have consequences. What is the idea of our face-to-face intimate relationship with God? How is that going to change us now and in the future? Well, verse 6, I think, is going to give us, verse 6 to 10 is going to give us three uh, different ways that it can change us now. Three ways that this idea of Christ coming soon in this manner, in this gracious, loving, intimate manner, how is that going to affect us now? What should it be doing? These are three things. We can obey. Since Christ is coming soon, we're to obey, we're to worship, and we're to herald. To obey, to worship, and to herald. So, point number one, since Jesus is coming soon, we should obey. Look in verse 6 with me. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the people, of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He says there in the beginning, These words are trustworthy and true. He's telling, him, telling us, this will happen. This is an absolute statement. You can hold on to this and, and take it to the bank. In other words, this is reality for us. And he says what? He has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So verses 1 through 5 is something happening soon. I think a lot of us uh, can live with the concept of, of Christ coming, but we don't actually live with this expectancy that it could be at any, any moment. As actually soon, we think, oh, maybe you know, a couple more thousand years and maybe it'll happen. But no, he's saying with the expectation that this will soon take place. And then he said, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is, is the word makarios. It, it could be translated happy or joyful obedience. Um, this isn't some dutiful obedience. We don't do this because, again, we're, we're afraid of, of him coming back and, and, and we're, we're doing that of fear. No, we do it because we love. We do it because we're thankful. And what are we thankful for? Well, like I said, we're in the middle of redemption and restoration in this big story, right? So we're thankful for our redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins. He lived a perfect life. And because of that, we no longer need to be afraid of sin. We've been redeemed. We've been set free from sin. Yes, we're so thankful for that. But at the same time, in a very real sense, we're thankful for what God is going to do in the future. We're thankful that this life isn't everything, that there is that, that salvation from sin and the, the, the freedom from it. Now we can look forward to, to the positive consequences of the gospel. That We can look forward to God creating all things. We can look forward to finally being face-to-face with this God who is absolutely satisfying. Every single day, you and I, our hearts are, are, are pulled towards things that seek to satisfy our desires, but ultimately, we were made to find satisfaction in Christ, and one day, that will be fulfilled, that he will be this light, and, and there will be no need for light, light, lamp, or sun, because his presence will be ubiquitous, because we will be face-to-face with him. Now, I'm in the Coast Guard, so before, but before my previous unit, or before my unit now, I was part of a ship, and we would go out for, for months and months and months at a time. 
And I did feel towards the end of that patrol just a, 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 an anxiousness, a, a desire, an expectation to see the face of my wife and my kids and to hold them and to grab them. Uh, I felt the emotions of, of, of pulling into port and, and finally being able to, to, to get home and see my family. Uh, that should be multiplied 10 million times with what we're going to see because the satisfaction and the love and, and the joy that I feel from my family while amazing and great that it is, pales in comparison to what we will finally feel when we see our Lord, when we see the one who we were made to worship. Um, and that, that really is the expectation that we are expectant, that Christ is coming and we finally get to take a hold of what we were made to take a hold of. The question is, how is that affecting us now? We keep going back to that, ideas have consequences. So if we really believe this, then what does that mean? Well, it means this, that our doing flows out of our being. That we, look, we only look forward to Christ's second coming because of who he declares us to be in Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I always say this, that my wife always makes fun of me because I say it almost every time. There's this, this principle, the indicative imperative principle in the Bible. Uh, we see it through and through um, in the New Testament epistles. Every time uh, Paul writes a letter, before he goes uh, and gives all these things that the people must do, he first reminds them of who they are. He tells them, you are, you know, sons and daughters of, of God. You have been redeemed. You are the saints. You are the elect. He gives all these indicatives, these words that indicate who they are, that say, hey, you are the chosen ones of God. Therefore, do this, this, and this, and this. He doesn't say, do this, this, and this, and this, so you can become the chosen ones of God. It's the opposite way. And, and because of that, because of our doing flows out of our being as God's children, as God's adopted families, his sons and daughters. We've been elevated from being slaves and enemies to royalty. If you think about it, we are princes and princesses. We are co-heirs with Christ. We get to reign with him. This is the reality in which we live. Because of that, because our doing flows out of our being, um, we are blessed. We get to, instead of Instead of waiting for Christ to come back in fear, hoping that what we're doing is going to be enough, we get to live in joy now. We get to do things and, and live obediently out of a joy and a love. And what's awesome is that we don't have to do it on our own. And too often we forget that. We think that we need to be obedient and we think we need to be doing good on our own. But there's so many reasons uh, that we don't. But why do we forget? Uh, a couple reasons why I wrote down here. Originally, when, when I wrote this um, message, it was in the context of a smaller group of people in a home. And, uh, and so I have in here asked this question, why do we forget? Why do we forget that our doing flows out of our being? Why do we forget that we are to wait in expectation that Christ is coming? And so I still want to ask that question even in this context because I want you guys to ponder that. These are questions that we should be asking. Why do we, not in a general nebulous sense, forget, not in this theoretical, oh, this is why humanity, you know, falls and forgets. Why do you specifically forget that Christ is coming soon? Why do we start to, to live our lives as if this is our home? Well, I wrote just, just a few things down, but I'm sure you guys can add to this list. Number one is that sin is ever-present to distract us from the truth of grace. When we sin, our natural reaction as human beings is to have guilt or, or shame and to run away from God. Um, to, to try to obey and to, to love God and earn his favor more. Um, sin is, 
is ubiquitous. Sin is deceitful. And sin can take many forms. Um, and there, there's so many permutations of, of this list that, that we can go through. But in general, sin um, blinds us and, and separates us relationally from God. He will always be our father, but we have a hard time coming to him as we continue to sin more and more. We see it in the Old Testament. And if we're honest with ourselves, we see it in our own life every day. Um, second one is that we are enticed by this world to make it our home, what I alluded to earlier. Uh, I like the illustration of someone going into a hotel and starting breaking down walls, you know, making new things, changing the countertops, as if that hotel room was their home, as if that hotel room was not a temporary residence, but they wanted to make it there. So they start doing all these things as if that's their permanent residence, but it's just a hotel room, right? It's just a place you go for, you sojourn, and then you leave. And for us, the reality is this world is just that. It's temporary. It's, it's, it's fading away, as we saw it in Second Peter. Uh, what does that do? That, that makes us maybe think that Christ's all-satisfying, glorious presence isn't enough. That if we see if this is the world that we want to live in ultimately, then we don't want to anticipate Christ's coming. That our jobs, our money, our own little kingdom that we call our homes, our, our jobs, our, our careers, our relationships becomes all in all because this world, we treat it as, as if it's our home instead of simply a hotel, just a place where we're staying in temporarily. Even these bodies, we, we idolize our bodies and we, we eat and, and we, we exercise and we do things not to stay healthy and not to be good stewards, but because this is it. This is, this is what we want to hold on to. Ultimately, we treat it as if blood and soil, like the Nazis said, is all in all, right? So to help us in our obedience, in anticipation of Christ. We need to be aware of these things. We need to be aware of our own heart. We need to ask those questions, like, like just personalize those things. What is causing me to forget that Christ is coming soon? What is causing me to make this world all in all? What is causing me to forget that I don't need to earn the love of Christ, but Christ already loves me? And those are questions we need to ask ourselves personally almost every day. Because one, we're sinful, we have a flesh that fails, and two, we have an enemy who wants us to, to fall and fail. So someone's actively attacking us, and we are actively falling for it. And so we need to remind ourselves, and what are the provisions that God in his grace has given us? Number one, the very first thing that he's given us, his Holy Spirit. This amazing, powerful person of the Trinity that is able to transform hearts and change us. That is able to, through his word, his main mode of communication, kill sin. How is that? In Romans 8, it says that we can actually be killing sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And how does he do it? Through his word. He's given us his word. He's given us his body, the church, our brothers and sisters here. So in our conversations day to day, how is this idea that we can be forgetful, that we are prone to forget the gospel and prone to sin? How is that idea dictating how we speak to each other? When we go to lunch after our Sunday meetings, are our conversations salted with reminders from the Word? Are we encouraging each other to, to be expectant of the second coming of Christ? In, in people's times of pain and suffering, what are we using to encourage them? Are they empty words or are they from the Word of God? You see, God's given us provisions to, to fight our tendency to go away from Him, to forget Him. The Holy Spirit, the Word, and the body, the church. Now, number two, since Jesus is coming soon, we should worship. We should worship. Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. 
And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. And here we see John just simply overwhelmed by the vision that he's just seen. See, we're at the end of Revelation, so he's seen way more than just, just one through five. He's seen over and over again this, this glorious vision of what God's going to do. And so he bows down and he worships this angel. But I don't think he's doing it out of sin, although, although it is you know, idolatry worshiping something that's not God, but he's doing it because he's simply overwhelmed, and that's just the natural reaction to what he's seen. Hey, John, this is the reality that you live in. This is what is going to happen. It's a trustworthy statement. Because of that, because John absolutely believed that it was true, his heart welled up in worship, and he just had to worship what was in front of him. But the angel is quick to say, no, 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 not me. Worship God. Did, did he worship God out of duty? Did he worship God out of fear that he wasn't doing enough? No. He worshiped God because he saw this amazing vision that just became his new reality. He, just, he had been privy to something that no one else in the entire world had ever seen. He's seen this amazing vision of what was going to happen in, in stark reality, and now he was faced with, what do I do? And it just welled up. It was natural reaction to what he was being overwhelmed by, to what he was, his mind was soaked in. And so, how are we to worship? Do we force worship? Do we say, no, I need to worship God, I need to worship God, I need to worship God? Well, as, as many of you have been Christians in a long time know, you know, human beings were made to worship, and we'll worship whatever you know, our, hearts, our hearts pull towards. And for John, he had, saturate, he had just been saturated with this grand vision from the Lord, the Word of God seen vividly in his mind. And because of that, his heart welled up in worship. And so for us, as we saturate our own minds with the Word of God, as we saturate our conversations with the Word of God, as we look at decisions, where am I going to go after I graduate? What, what major am I supposed to pick? What, what kind of job am I going to pursue? Who am I to marry? Are those decisions, that are, are we making those decisions through this, this paradigm, this filter of the Word of God and His reality? If we are, then we are going to worship in those moments. If, if we are soaking every aspect of our life, every facet of our mind is just through and through soaked with the word of God and his reality. It's going to well up in worship. It's not something that needs to be forced. Our hearts will be transformed and we will worship as he is doing. Worship God. Because we're amazed, because we experience, because he is making all things new. Now, Charles Purgeon tells a story of a man who worshiped, two men actually, who worshiped one from a right heart and one from the wrong heart. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day, there was a gardener who grew this enormous carrot. And he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched, and he discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift, so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. Now you can tell the king was a wise king. He could discern hearts. Second man comes. There was a nobleman. You know, he was singing at the king's court, and he overheard the whole interaction with this gardener. And he said, my, 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 if that is what you get for a carrot, 
What if you gave the king something even better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he, was, he came leading this handsome black stallion, the biggest, the most muscular, shiny sheen. He bowed low, and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse that I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. Same action, same words, arguably even a better gift. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, thank you. And he took the horse, turned around, and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. And so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you, you were giving the horse to yourself. Same words, same actions, different heart. True worship comes from the heart. There is no false motivation. It comes from a heart who's just been captured by grace, captured by this glorious one who is just through and through in the pages of the word. And as we soak our minds with God's word, we get to see and know and be more intimate with the God of the Bible. And our hearts overwhelmingly want to worship. They overflow with what's in here. And so this needs to be in our heart. True worship flows from the heart. That's the worship that pleases God. The same as John. Think of John. Just, just this amazing vision that he had just heard falls on his face and wants to worship God. And this, that's not the first time. He did it first time in uh, chapter 19. So that's how we should be. Are we overwhelmed by this grand vision of God's grace for us? Or, like the first point, do we forget? Do we forget how glorious Christ is? Do we forget how heavy the payment was? Do we forget just how much he loves us? Do we forget the vast gap that Christ had to cross to, to condescend and come down as a human being, weak and meek from, from, from his throne of grace? Do we forget those things? Yes, we do. How do we remember? We've got to saturate our minds with the ideas that are in this book because ideas have consequences, but only if we believe them to be absolutely true. Verse 10, this is point three. Since Jesus is coming soon, we should herald. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. For the time is near. Here, I think, is really where the rubber meets the road, right? Here's where I've personally struggled with my actions lining up with the reality that I know in my heart to be true. And, you know, on this side of heaven, we're, we're going to be like that, right? We're going to need people to come up here and proclaim the word. We're going to need brothers and sisters when we're at the coffee shop or in class to remind us of those truths. We're going to need someone to say, hey, this is reality. And so he's saying here, because of all this, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. It's an emphatic statement. It's absolute. So put it, to put it plainly, really, are we telling the lost about Christ? Are we being heralds? Because we can live obedient lives. We can be you know, kind to people on the street. We can be generous with our money. We can be uh, you know, hard workers in the class to the glory of God. We can be compassionate and loving. But are we doing what Christ ultimately called us to do, which is to make disciples? Are we going out there and proclaiming Christ? Are we encouraging the fellow saints with the promise of, of his coming? If, if this is our reality, are we being heralds? When he says, don't seal up the, the words of the prophecy of this book, is it, it isn't just to tell the lost about it, but he's saying, hey, this is hope for everyone, for the Christian and the non-Christian. This is true. What stops us from doing that? Again, another question. Why do we forget that this is reality? Why do we stop? Do we really believe this? That he is coming soon. 
So if Christ is really a loving Savior, and if Christ is really coming back, then why do we let these opportunities slip away to encourage each other through the word, to, to tell the lost about Christ? I do it every day. There are people and opportunities that I could bring the gospel up, but sometimes I choose not to. Why do we do it? Again, we've got to ask these questions of our own hearts so we can actively and specifically repent of them and, and trust in our Lord Jesus once again. Repent and faith is how we came to Christ, and that's how we live our lives in Christ. So for me, am I afraid of rejection? Yeah, I think for me, in reality, my, I always say it every time, one of my biggest fears is the rejection of man, and, I, and I, I love knowing it because then I can actively fight it, and I can easily recognize it in myself. Why am I not telling this person next to me at work about Christ? Because I'm afraid of losing my job. Because I'm afraid of him rejecting me and not being my friend anymore. Because I'm afraid that he's going to tell other people that I'm a Christian. Whatever it is, are we afraid of rejection? Are we afraid that our words won't be enough? Maybe I'm not smart enough to proclaim this, this gospel to this person. In, in a college setting, when I was in college, I was, I was sometimes afraid that, hey man, this person is going to come up with this, this you know, apologetic answer to, to anything I say about Christ. He's, he's way smarter than me. How am I going to say this and, and bring it up to him? Well, it just goes back to that question. Do we really believe that this is reality? If someone has all these scientific answers for whatever we say, then does that negate the truth of this word? By no means. Does that, does that make this any less true? No. And we need, to be, we need to really have it in our hearts that this is reality, that this is truth. In the day and age that we live in, um, there is the, the LGBT community, right? And they are uh, everywhere and ubiquitous. They are people made in the image of God to be loved and cared for, but they can also be some of the, the most intimidating people to bring the gospel to. They, they can be scary because not only are they individuals, but they're a whole movement who has these preconceived notions about what a Christian is like. But if this is true, if Jesus Christ is the only way that they can be saved, if Jesus Christ can change hearts and bring true satisfaction, then those fears need to be washed away. Those fears need to be laid to rest because reality is the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you the words to proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who has the power to change hearts. That's why we proclaim the gospel in the first place. If it was our words that, that persuaded people, the word would not be saved. It's the Holy Spirit who changes lives. And if that is reality, if that is true, why don't we tell our unbelieving families about Christ? Because we're afraid of what will happen? Because we're scared that, hey, maybe this, not, this isn't true. It's true for me, but maybe not for them. Those are the questions we need to ask. Do we truly believe that Christ can do what he says he will? Now, some truths to combat some of those lies. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says that Christ will come like a thief in the night. So is, is Christ coming? Yeah, he's coming, but maybe not, you know, not in a while. Who knows? He could come now. There needs to be a sense of urgency that, he's, that Paul's proclaiming here in 1 Thessalonians. Christ will come, and it will come soon and when it's unexpected. Oh, you know what? I'll tell this person about Christ you know, maybe a few lunches from now, or maybe in a few weeks, once he sees that I'm a Christian and I live my life right, and, you know, I'll proclaim the gospel through my words and, or through, through my actions, and, and that'll be enough for now. And then I'll tell him later. Well, in Luke 13, 4, we see the, the, uh, the story of the Tower of Siloam where these people were just doing their work and the towers collapsed and, and they died. These people who died immediately, suddenly, and unexpectedly. Do we live our life as if life is fragile or do we expect people, especially in America, to live a long life and we can tell them next time? 
You can tell them when, when, you know, when I see them next time. Well, there might not be a next time. That is the reality, and that is the truth of the Bible. And the gospel, lastly, is a message to be proclaimed. It's not simply an action to perform. I've seen it over and over again. I, I go to this Bible study at our, um, at our work on base, at the Coast Guard base, and I've heard it many times that people just, just want to live their lives, proclaim the gospel through their actions. Well, you can't proclaim the gospel through their actions. You, you can live out the implications of the gospel, but until the gospel is proclaimed in an emphatic terms, until it's said as a message, the gospel is the good news. It's a message that needs to be heard. And those actions mean absolutely nothing. That just means that you're a nice guy or girl. You're, you're a person who works hard. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed. That's the truth. That's the word of God. So let me conclude by reading a few things uh, from the word of God. These things that that we as, as God's beloved saints anticipate excitedly. These ideas that are supposed to produce consequences in our lives. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I, as I have been fully known. See, Paul, when he wrote that, was in the same spot that we are in, in this grand meta-narrative of the Bible, right? He was post-redemption, but, but pre-restoration. He was enjoying the, the fruits of, of the work of Christ on the cross, but he was awaiting, anticipating excitedly the coming of Christ. And he's saying here, now we see dimly, but then we'll be face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our relationship with Christ um, in the future will be a full relationship. We don't need to be um, hiding anything we will be, it says, fully known. We've already been fully known. He knows us through and through. Um, and yet, even though he knows our sins, he knows our shortcomings, he has loved us and he will allow us to see him face to face. He will give us glorified bodies that can stand in the presence of his own glory. Now, Revelations 22, 1 through 5. One more time. But as you read this, think about how this reality should dictate our lives should change the way we view people. Even today, as we walk out of those doors, how is this going to change the way we live? Colossians, I think 1.18 says that Christ should be preeminent in all things. How is this going to allow us to do that, help us to do that? Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street, the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Let me read that again. No longer will there be anything accursed. The earth will no longer groan. We will no longer be sick. There will be no longer death. There will be no strife. There will just be Christ. All in all, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We will gaze upon the face of the glorious one, and we will not die. We will gaze at him, and we can keep looking at him. We don't have to turn our face. Night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Again, angels can't even look at him, but we get to. We get to. That's part of the coming of Christ is we can anticipate this. It's not this nebulous idea. John, in this Revelation letter, has laid it out for us. 
This is the God that we will see, and this is how he will come. But we, as sons and daughters of the Most High, will see him face to face. There is no fear of being pressed down in the wine press and our blood flowing like a river. We don't have to be like that. So at the end of Revelations 22.20, John ends with this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He who testifies to these things, Christ, says, Surely I am coming soon. Christ himself said, I am coming soon. And John's response, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Not, could you hold off just for a little bit until I get to do this and that. Not, uh, yeah, you're probably going to come you know, later on. You know, he's saying, come, 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 Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And that attitude, that response, should be our response. So when we're in class at Berkeley or when we're you know, at work doing whatever we're doing, is that the attitude of our hearts? Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Or are we thinking, man, when I finish this class, I'm going to go to this class, and then when I graduate, I'm going to get this job, then when I get this job, I'm going to get married, I'm going to do this and this and this. Do we have all these plans? Are we waiting in anticipation, laying those plans at the feet of Jesus? Yes, those are good plans. Yes, we do it in wisdom. But ultimately, is Christ preeminent in all things, as, as Colossians says? Are we waiting with bated breath? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is to be our response in light of all these things that we just said today. Ideas have consequences, and for us, those consequences are glorious. So would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. In a moment, we're going to you know, sing more songs as, as you guys do here um, in response to what we've heard, in response to this idea that, that uh, we look forward to the restoration of all things, that we can see this amazing Christ face to face. And during this time, we're going to be taking communion. We can't look forward to what's going to happen without looking back uh, at what has happened already for us. And so as we take communion, as we take the crackers and the juice, we remember uh, what Christ has done, his broken body and his shed blood. But before we do that, the Bible says, you know, not to take this in an unworthy manner. And so, you know, take a moment before you get up, before you start singing, just listen to the lyrics maybe, and, and when you're ready, get up and, and ask those questions of yourself. What am I believing that's stopping me from doing this? And what do I need to repent of now? Those are good questions to ask before we partake of the Lord's Supper. We take it in a worthy manner. We take it as God's forgiven people. So let me pray, and then we'll worship. Our Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful that we are a people who have a hope. God, that we can look forward uh, to Christ coming back, not out of fear, not out of, of, uh, of hopelessness, but out of, of hope and love and anticipation. God, I pray that our time in the next few minutes would be a time that blesses you, God, as you look into our hearts, as you see our thoughts, I pray, God, that in this moment of worship, we would remember the love of Christ on the cross, and we would look forward to your second coming. God, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.